0: Hey, everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody! Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests: Nikhil Krishnan, strategic partnerships at TrialSpark, and Malay Gandhi, uh, business ops at Evadation and Health, as well as an investor in the healthcare space. Uh, both backed by popular demand for round two. Uh, Nikhil, and Malay, welcome back.
1: Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Eric.
0: Awesome. Happy to be here. Awesome. Uh, Nikhil, you, you recently gave a talk about how the speed of innovation in healthcare is changing thanks to new tech entrants. Uh, you talked about infrastructure changes. You talked about AI first companies. You talked about patient experience as a business model. Why don't you unpack some of the some of the main points you were trying to make uh, in that slide deck?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, I think there are there are a few kind of big themes I want to talk about. The first was how the infrastructure to start a healthcare company has has basically gotten much better. And now, even if you just look five years ago versus today, um, just the number of sort of services that are available to start a healthcare company uh, has just totally exploded. And uh, it's now much easier than ever to basically start a healthcare company, which I think is really good for the space. Uh, The second thing is basically about how you have these new kind of AI native companies. So, I mean, generally, you know, when some disruptive new technology comes around, it's not actually that interesting until you see really cool new workflows and business models that are hard to replicate. And so really starting to see a lot of those companies um, get built now. And then patient experience, which is this kind of like meme buzzword that like everyone kind of just like throws around randomly in the industry. I think you're starting to see really interesting ways that it actually can be a defensible business model. And so those are sort of the three Kind of interesting trends that I've I've been following in the healthcare space right now, and I think it's also just important for anyone who's interested in how kind of how the speed of of, of innovation and change is happening in healthcare startups. Um, I think it's important for kind of everyone to, to to know.
1: And
0: if you're giving this same talk, you know, three years from now, what, what do you hope is is different or changed or evolved, or how, how do you see it playing out?
2: I think it gets even easier over time to start a healthcare business, and as it should, um, you know, in my head, one of the things that healthcare kind of severely lacks is this like sl- this long tail of small, medium-sized businesses in kind of every part of healthcare. Uh, because those small, medium businesses become early adopters for the next wave of companies, etc. Right? Like in enterprise tech land, you always have these other startups that you basically you know pilot your service with and then you scale up etc healthcare kind of lacks that you almost have to immediately jump to like the largest player in the space to get an anchor customer etc um it's cool now that we're seeing like the first wave of like digital health companies actually become customers now of this new uh, wave so for example like oscar is now a customer of of a lot of these APIs as a service uh, companies, So I'm hoping as this ecosystem kind of gets more built out, there are more customers and more early adopter cohorts where you can really really have just faster speed of experimentation. So really hoping there are more like SMBs in this space.
0: That's a nice segue into uh, Malay. You, you wrote a blog post uh, three years ago called uh, Building a Big Health Tech Company. Where we talked about why we haven't really seen the types of unicorns and healthcare that we were, as we were we were expecting at the time. Maybe unpack a little bit what you were trying to do with that blog post, and then you can uh, discuss how, you know, three years later, where are we? Yeah, I
1: think the, the core sort of thesis of, of that piece was that if you looked at a lot of the companies that decided to serve the industry, Uh, working on like provider IT or pair IT and, and, and so on, they had a really challenging time actually building, building substantial businesses. And the argument was that you were sort of scraping pennies off of penny scrapers to, to start with. And so it was hard to, you know, hard to, hard to build scale. And if you wanted to think about building a, uh, you know, a company in this space, it wasn't, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't use the terms, but essentially to build, uh, companies that would have, you know, I, I guess people would describe this as, as full stack. Uh, and I would argue just having much more control, um, over the value chain and then specifically in healthcare, trying to solve some of the principal agent, uh, problems. So rather than working through intermediaries and middlemen, you know, help, help those who actually spend money in the healthcare system take, take more agency, uh, over that, over that spend, um, or for individuals, their own, their own health. So that was kind of the central, the central premise of the piece. I think, uh, the I mean, yeah, ensuing three three and a half years, whatever it's been now, have been you know relatively interesting. I think there was a long um, IPO drought between between now and then. Actually, like there wasn't actually that many companies that went that went public. Uh, and then there's been you know a handful of IPOs this year. I think uh, you know I'll give will give Nikhil a shout out. I think he described it as the Beast Coast, so the big acquisitions <laughs> in in health tech. Uh, neither were out of the valley. So Flatiron, I think, was one of the largest exits actually in New York venture history. It was sold for um, you know about around two billion to to Roche, and then uh, PillPack uh, was uh, was sold um, uh, to to Amazon for you know somewhere around a, somewhere around a billion dollars, something in that range out of out of Boston. And I think, um, look, I, I'm not, uh, <laughs> trying to pat myself on the back, but I think Flatiron is best described as like a high performance oncology network. They use software to create a network of oncologists that were able to have higher performance. And then they were, you know, obviously monetizing, um, uh, in the pharma space and Pillpack was directly cited, uh, you know, in the, in the piece as a company that had gained some, uh, control over their value chain as, uh, you know, a, a pharmacy. And I think had ambitions of, um, moving further into that into that value chain including as um, sort of distribution for other companies um, and even potentially becoming a you know PBM and taking on more taking on more risk and I guess we'll see what they do um, with with Amazon. So I think that's like one side of it. We have seen a couple of you know pretty interesting outcomes one to a legacy pharma company and then one into a new, um, sort of like a, a big, a big tech company or a new healthcare entrant. So those dynamics have been interesting. And then the IPO drought broke, um, sort of this year. Probably the two I was most interested in were Lavongo and Health Catalyst. Lavongo is like a company that's, um, come up, grown really, really quickly in this sort of chronic disease management or some people call digital therapeutics space. Um, I'm not going to use the term they use to describe themselves because I don't think it's a real, it's a real yeah. category, but. Um, that was interesting to see one of the first sort of, uh, disease management companies that was in the B2B to C, B2B to C space go public. Were they able to create that model? And, you know, they were ahead of many other companies that actually started, started before them. And then Health Catalyst, I would say is more exactly what as an investor, you've come to expect out of a lot of healthcare companies. It's like half software, half services. You're plotting along doing these huge sort of large scale deals with, you know, incumbent, incumbent healthcare companies, hoping it blends together into a reasonably, um, uh, scalable business. So I think it was good to see those, those couple IPOs, um, you know, this year. The other thing, like the third piece of when I was looking back at the piece, uh, was, was around that, the IPOs, like the companies that had went, went public during that time. Um, it's interesting to look back now of like which companies have done well and which haven't. So Fitbit and Evelyn have tanked, like not doing well as businesses. And then I think Teladoc has done you know, surprisingly well from from my view. And then health equity is the other one that they're in like the health savings account space. And so if I think of those four companies, Fitbit and wearables, uh, consumer wearables, Evelyn and value-based healthcare, Teladoc and telemedicine and health equity and sort of consumerism. Telemedicine and consumerism did really well, and value-based healthcare and consumer devices didn't do so well. If you think of them as like sort of pure play opportunities as as categories, two trends played out and two two didn't. I don't know if that was like well like known a priori, but it is it's interesting to look back at yeah, two 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 didn't do so two two categories didn't do do so well. And I would say that um I don't feel like value-based healthcare has made a lot of movement in the last in the last three years. I don't think there's been some big, big shift. Um, around that. Yeah.
0: So if you wrote the post today, would it be more or less pretty similar of, hey, you know, companies still need to own more of the, more of the value chain um, and not, not rely on intermediaries or would it, be, you know, have we seen a lot of that and, and your piece would be somewhat different in terms of the, ch- the challenges or opportunities of building a big t- tech company today?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the big piece that was left out was there's one value chain that's very profitable inside the healthcare industry, which is the life sciences value chain. So there's probably more companies to build within that scheme, but I do, uh, and Nikhil can talk more about it. I think even the companies that are serving the life science industries are trying to eat more of that value chain, become, you know, their own drug discovery or drug, drug companies, um, not just simply serve, serve the industry. But I do think the life sciences, like serving a life science industry is a bit different than serving the payer industry or the provider industry. So I think that's one different component of it that I would look at. Um I would push even harder on the consumer side. I think the opportunity is bigger than it even was when I described it three years ago. I think it's bigger and get it's it's bigger and getting bigger. so I would push a bit more of that. yeah, ultimately, any consumer opportunity to me is about uh, about having more control over the value chain and not not working through a payer to access a patient or working through a provider to access a patient, but really doing that, really doing that on your own. Um, so yeah, I, I don't I don't know that I uh, it could be good or bad. I don't know that I've changed my my view on on that on that piece of the equation about value chain control and uh, trying to not get yourself in in some kind of weird principal agent problem where intermediaries aren't really that interested in uh, supporting their their end you know end users and customers.
2: I, I think totally right. Just to chime in really quickly, like uh, I, I I think um on the consumer side the opportunity seems bigger than ever before there's like a combination of more uninsured and cash pay patients now uh you know we saw the first i think i think it's like we saw the first ever rise in the uninsured segment ever this year since obamacare kicked in uh which is crazy and there are a lot of reasons for that you know medicare medicaid enrollment uh you know getting tougher uh no individual mandate, etc. But there's this now this consumer segment, which is so interesting to watch right now, of people actually paying for cash uh, for a lot of healthcare services. So there's the direct primary care space. There's like the good Rx's of the world. Have done a great job bringing price transparency into into the um, uh, phar- uh, pharmacy space. So I'm actually you know really really interested in that space. I think there's a lot of full stack consumer companies to be built and we're slowly seeing being built. I mean, to Malay's point, uh, companies like Livongo, again, you know, not going to questionable whether they're an actual digital therapeutics company, et cetera, but a lot of kind of new primary care modalities that are kind of targeting a really specific subpopulation, I think are really interesting. And obviously at TrialSpark, we work really deeply in the life sciences space. So I think that's totally correct around there's just, I think, more, low hanging fruit for tech to actually uh, basically make the process more efficient. And, and it's, I think you, I think there's like, there's a ton of kind of greenfield opportunity for companies to come and improve that process. But the problem is that if you're not taking on risk or if you're not being uh, a true competitor to the existing incumbents, you're not going to feel the full benefits of using tech if you have to play with all the other, um, you know, basically play with all the existing legacy systems. Well, like you're basically just backwards integrating at that point, which is which is not as useful.
0: Yeah, I, I want to get into our, our request for startups or, or where we see is that as the white space. And we talked about two, you know, big big categories. We talk about consumer. We talked about life science. Maybe maybe we can start there. How, how about within consumer? Like, what are we really excited about? What do we think is not yet You've been been really captured, or or been you know um, where there's a big company in the space.
2: I guess I can start first. I think I think in my head, uh, people no one has really nailed the online to offline uh, kind of patient care channel yet. You've seen some kind of like tidbits of this with like one medical using telemedicine. To basically answer kind of low hanging fruit questions, and they also have their clinics, uh, crossover bought Sherpa. Uh, we've seen kind of bits and pieces of this, um, but but really, like what is a what is a like true combination primary care look like that combines telemedicine, wearables, and diagno- at home diagnostics? So really properly triage patients and then escalate them properly to the right domain of care for that level of severity. So. I don't think we've really seen the full, what, what, that could, what the real potential of that looks like. But one, of the, one of the, I think, most interesting parts to me is if you look at the Apple Watch study, they basically combined Apple Watch plus a telemedicine consult to then figure out the severity of your disease. Uh, you can imagine a world in which uh, consumers basically get alerted, do a telemedicine triage, or kind of escalated maybe to a higher sensitivity test and then uh, basically determined if they really need to go to a hospital or not. Uh, we, I, just don't, I just really don't think we've seen the true benefits of telemedicine yet in the U.S. You can even look to some other countries that maybe have done this slightly better um, as potential examples of, uh, of what telemedicine could look like. If you look at places like China, etc., they're, they're, they're virtual care their virtual care to in-person care um, kind of system uh, has so much more emphasis on the virtual care. So, I, I still think we haven't quite seen the like benefits of telemedicine here.
1: I mean, I think I would. Uh, I mean, I, I would definitely echo that. The, the probably the, the flavor that I would put on it that's that's maybe um, similar but slightly different. Um, I, I tend to think a lot about uh, how you know the, the form of medicine that's being practiced today will. Have to move pretty far to to the edge, like much closer to where the the patient is. Um, and we talk about like the the patient knowing before the doctor does, and the doctor calling you, not you sort of calling the doctor. Um, and I, I do think that's like part of that is part of that is telemedicine, but probably what I equate it to more is. Um, you know, as medical information came online, it was really, you know, for, for lack of a better term, democratizing. It was the, the first time you could actually as a, an individual feel something, type it into a search engine and potentially get a result. And honestly, here we are 20, 25 years later, it's still basically the same when I want to get information about my health. I type it into Google, I type my symptoms in and now there's a knowledge graph card. WebMD is probably you know, pretty far de-ranked now, but that's, that's the basics of it. And it's this sort of what I would describe as really accessible. It's obviously free. Like you can, you can get it for, for no cost. So it's, it's ubiquitous, like anywhere you have an internet connected device, but it's extremely unreliable. It's not personalized in, in any way. And I think the biggest thing that feels missing is like, where is the step change on that of, now my own information has been indexed, like my own data about my health has been indexed, and I'm able to figure out what's, what's going on with me. And I'm, I'm glad Nikhil brought up, you know, sort of the, the Apple Watch. That's sort of one of these first examples of uh, a person, like an individual using a consumer-grade, highly accessible device and getting deeply personalized, clinically relevant, um, and, you know, I would argue actionable Uh, information delivered to them before their physician gets it. To me, that is the beginning of what that next wave looks like. And we haven't, to me, we haven't really seen a company that is uh, trying to just like we um, sort of index medical information and put it on the internet. But like, what about indexing our own health health data? And I don't mean our health records. I mean, everything we can sort of know about ourselves or just health records and um, surfacing surfacing that. Um to us before we have to go into a clinic or into a hospital, and I think telemedicine is a big component of how we'll triage and treat those things, but not the sort of like sole sole component of it.
2: Yeah, it's really moving from like this reactive care model to a proactive care model, right? Where it's like it's just kind of insane to think about the fact that we basically wait till we physically feel sick before we go see the doctor. Like that just makes no sense. And to the to your to the like a, add a little bit to the Apple Watch thing. Another kind of trend in consumer healthcare is that I think is important is kind of embedding healthcare into these into these processes, tools, and places that we already go so that the friction is just way lower to engage in health services when we need them. Like, I love that these retailers are getting more involved in healthcare. I think that's smart. I think that's awesome. And it makes it way more accessible for people to actually go get, you know, go get services when they need to. Like they don't have to go create like a standalone to a standalone clinic somewhere else and carve out time at, out of their schedule. Like if you need primary care at the very least, it should be accessible to people in like a form that is the lowest friction way possible. And that can be embedded in like a watch that we were already buying. And it's not a healthcare device. It just happens to do healthcare stuff. You're going to Walmart. It's not a healthcare place. It's a grocery store. It happens to have healthcare stuff. Uh, my favorite study from like the last few years was the barbershop uh, heart failure study where you put in a pharmacist to screen people uh, in predominantly African-American neighborhoods who are at risk for a cardiovascular disease because they're already there, right? Like it's... It it make it's just by reducing these barriers to going to see a doctor. Um, I think I think we'll see like real consumer kind of participation in their healthcare.
0: And, and so, what uh, for people who want to build companies in, in, in consumer healthcare, what um, what uh, what else? Where else would you point them? Like, what makes sense as a wedge or an entry point or opportunities?
2: One area that I think is really interesting, it's still like pretty small, but I I still think it's interesting is the direct primary care space is kind of this, like, and and for those who don't know, it's basically people who are paying a cash pay retainer to a primary care physician. And then the primary care physician essentially acts as kind of like your Sherpa into the healthcare uh, world. Right. And it's this interesting combination of, of consumerism, as well as reducing the information asymmetry by actually having a doctor on your side to help you assess things and these businesses like actually operate with normal customer acquisition costs, lifetime value equations that I think it's very rare in the healthcare system so basically by using these direct primary care companies or direct primary care clinics rather you kind of have both access to a consumer uh, as well as a physician to understand um, basically, the needs of either or. So that's a space that I think is actually super interesting and is a, is a great wedge, I think, to quite a few consumers.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think uh, concierge medicine in general is super interesting. I mean, I think uh, if you if you look at the price points it's something like a you know a one medical at one hundred fifty to two hundred a year, and then something like forward at fifteen hundred a year and jordan Schlein and select medical at like 50,000 50,000 a year there's one core experience everyone seems to be paying for which is the right to get their doctor's phone number i mean it's like a lot of money but that's like fundamentally what it is and probably as you go up stack like a willingness to say yes to different problems like you can text your you know doctor at forward and say like hey i want a cgm device and i'm at foreman prescription and they're like no problem they don't know whether you have diabetes or uh, anything, but you want anti-aging and you want to be on a keto diet. So all of a sudden you can get, you know, sort of access to these things. And I do, I find that, um, you know, interesting in the sense that people are looking for, as Nikhil as was saying, like lower barriers, lower friction ways to interact with the healthcare system, get it a bit more on demand. So I would be surprised if there aren't sort of Netflix, Spotify style subscriptions, 8 to $15 a month that people pay to gain access, to be able to sort of text a doctor and and transact with them, something something pretty lightweight. I don't think things like, you know, sort of your super health concierge that will solve any problem for you in the healthcare system, research problems or negotiate bills with your insurance companies, like that stuff, I don't think scales very well, but the idea of getting like sort of information, healthcare information out of a doctor or getting prescribing out of a doctor for sort of eight to 15 a month is, is fascinating to me. I also think that um, uh, the other area, I don't know that it's a space that's untapped now, but I'm really interested in is like what companies like QBio are, are doing. And I've seen a couple other um, imaging related clinics. Uh, what's What struck me about that space is that we go, you know, almost our whole lives until something pretty bad happens to ever have a view inside of our body, which seems pretty crazy. Uh, and the cost of doing imaging and what they might be able to do, Find to detect. I think you know there is a reasonable argument that some of those things are consumer consumer services. Like if they hung a billboard talking about the things that you might be able to detect early, a lot of people are going to have sort of demand uh, for for those those types of services. So I think there's still a big underserved market, um, probably in the I don't know upper third, um, you know for for folks upper third from an income perspective. Like that hasn't really uh, been been tapped into. We're mostly just still like sitting with our insurance, mostly just sitting with our primary care physician. And there's um, still like quite a bit more demand for healthcare services. Yeah,
2: I, as a quick aside and funny story, I uh, got an MRI done for something completely unrelated. I was having migraines for a bit, and discovered through the migraine through the MRI of my head that I've had a deviated septum basically my entire life. But I've just never been in an MRI before, and yeah, I was like, oh, that explains a
1: lot. Well, that and that's crazy if you think about it, because MRI is actually a pretty inexpensive technology it is completely safe there's like nothing that it will uh do to you i mean the contraindications are obviously like having metal implants in you yet uh your insurance company fights vehemently against you ever uh getting one of those things and they're not i mean they we have a lot in america but it's still not an accessible technology which is nuts like how long could you go without the doctor ever seeing inside of your body yeah, MRIs crazy.
2: are like MRIs are like the case study on on why the economics of healthcare are so messed up because it's this like commodity, basically commodity procedure machine. It's the same machine in almost every MRI imaging center, and yet somehow uh, the one in the hospital costs like ten thousand dollars, and the one two blocks away costs like one thousand dollars. Which just it's just the price variance is totally insane for a commodity you know procedure.
0: Uh-huh. Let's also talk a bit about uh, life sciences. So first, Malay, maybe you can talk about, as you were mentioning, what you didn't say in your piece, how it's, how life sciences is different than than healthcare, it in terms of investing or building a company within, or just understanding how that, how that works. And then we can talk about you know, where, where we're excited and where people should look to build and invest.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you know sometimes it's it's a bit overlooked. Uh, obviously, not in today's in today's media environment, there's a lot of scrutiny on, on drug companies. But if, if you look at it from sort of a, a profit pooling perspective, even though it's uh, maybe 10 to 15% of the healthcare system, it's probably equivalent of like all the profits hospitals make drug companies probably make uh, more like the same or the same or more, even though they're a much smaller uh, fraction of, of, of overall spending. So in general, like number one, they're extraordinarily rich companies. And then two, I would say the other big opportunity has been that they're uh, heavily intermediated. So they leak uh, on the commercial side. So selling drugs, they lose 30 cents on the dollar to distribution middlemen. And um, I would guess that on the sort of like clinical development, like the, the, the whole process of um, connecting to potential participants in a study and pulling data out of them to describe or better characterize the benefits and risks of their of their product, uh, they leak about uh, they leak about sixty cents on the dollar uh, there to middlemen like like CROs, and so I think it's just been this very ripe opportunity for more efficiency with customers that have um, pretty big value on the other on the other side of it because of the the business model of of drugs having these kind of protected IP assets, that they charge extraordinarily high gross margins for. Um, yeah, on the products but being heavily, heavily intermediated almost in every aspect of their value chains. So it's been a, it seems to have been a, a more attractive, um, you know, opportunity space than going after like pairs or providers from like where you want to deploy software technologies.
0: And and how, for for entrepreneurs, we're, we're looking to to build there. Where, where do you think is a wedge or entry point or or opportunity in terms of what might you like to see someone someone do there?
1: Um, I mean, I think there's probably like a ton of them. I mean, life sciences are super, super complex. I would say like one area I've become more interested in is the entire decision-making process around how we choose which assets get developed and then eventually marketed. And there's many more potential molecules sort of out there, like more supply than there is demand. And capacity to pull them through from a clinical development perspective. So you have this very, very long tail of pharmaceutical and biotech companies who are sort of single asset companies. They're pulling this asset along using, using you know, public or private, public meaning like government or academic funding or some private capital, to pull them along and hoping, you know, they all show up at JPM in January and these hotel floors to negotiate yeah. deals to sell those assets off to some of the larger drug companies that have the funding to pull them through through clinical development and that whole decision-making process around which assets to actually pull in and then whether to progress them or not, I find to be, now that I've you know been a little bit more engaged on the clinical development side, to be one of the most complex areas. It seems too multimodal from a decision-making standpoint to assume that human beings are actually making good and rational rational decisions. I'll share one anecdote of something we were we were looking at at, at Evidation. Um, I think Mikheel actually tweeted about this, of like the number of physician assessments that are done in very crude ways and should be automated or potentially looked at differently. Evidation is really interested in sensor and objective objective data. So we were looking at something in the um, ALS space. And let's just say within a clinical trial due to the nature of ALS, you're going to maybe get uh, six to eight data points per, per patient. You bring them in. Uh, you know, monthly, and it's a primary, like it's a progressive disorder that ends in, ends in death. So you don't have a lot of a lot of time with the patient. And if you look at the sort of gold standard measure, dysfunctional um, rating scale ALS, functional rating scale ALS, FRS, which has a, a few different components. but essentially you ask the patient to come in the clinic and they perform a series of you know things and then we score it and they go on, and that's the, that's the whole game. That's the scorecard for whether the drug gets approved or not. Well, we looked at the data in a clinical study, uh, related to here were the physician assessments done in the clinic, but the people were wearing sensors um, on and around uh, their clinic visits. And if you look at the intraday variability in those measurements, so we map them to look at like, is their performance better or worse at different times during the day? And then you look at the intraday uh, sort of performance, reliability of, of that using objective sensor data. I mean, it turns out that it's probably just luck is all it amounts to is when did the patient actually come into the clinic like, what hour they came in because of the high degree of intraday variation, or what data they come in the clinic did an even higher amount of intraday variation, which I don't know that I understood before of like, what is the role of sort of luck and chance in the outcomes uh, of these studies? And we can only like look back at some of that data. And so, the thing I've been interested in, like, my request for sort of startups, since I'm an area I've been pushing people into, it's not our space that evitation with, drug companies are actually sitting on a tremendous amount of. Clinical trial data. It's kind of ridiculous how many assets have been looked at, developed, partially developed, the amount of data they collect per sort of trial. Um, I would push companies to think about like a push a, a startup to work actually with, with pharmaceutical companies, to gain access to some of that data and try to help with, um, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but honestly, like AI based decision making to help guide. I think humans still need to be there to, to help with it. Um, uh, but the tactics around that and how we make those make and structure those decisions seem relatively broken to me. Um, uh, not really relying upon the vast amounts of data that are that are actually out there, and it's because I look back at this and I see just the absolute amount of luck that plays plays this role. Um, but those endpoints might turn out to be like highly correlated with with failure as an example of like a you know a, the type of data that. Um, I think it'd be useful as companies start to try to make better decisions um, in this space. That would be, you know, one area I, I think is interesting and would love for somebody to look at. Yeah, just to
2: jump in there, obviously, because like we we are a new CRO, so we I've obviously spent a lot of time looking at this stuff. Uh, one of uh, you know, one thing to Malay's point is uh, if you think about AI in life sciences versus AI, I think when we in the pair provider space. Uh, I you know, this is obviously very generalized, but I think a lot of companies that are in the pair provider space are like in some capacity, basically trying to replicate some existing process and just like automate it essentially, right? Like how do we do this thing that a human used to do, but make it totally automated versus in the life sciences space, the just sheer amount of data that is available to people means that you're actually like allowing for new types of analyses that, just straight up could not be done by a human being beforehand. It's not even it's not even something where you're trying to replace a person. It's literally like, oh, we now can derive very new types of insights because we now have the tools to like do very like massive scale um, amounts of, of analysis. So it's kind of two different ballgames a little bit. And then to the point around clinical trials and endpoints. I mean, if you think about the amount of variability just in a normal patient visit, I mean, it's basically amplified in a clinical trial because you're concentrated in way fewer number of physicians who are actually doing it. Uh, you're, you're, there's a lot more kind of, like, like I said, intraday variability and we're really, really just limited to what we see in the clinic currently. And so there's a lot of room for improvement of monitoring patients while they're on a trial outside of the trial. And you know one thing that our kind of clinical trial offering, uh, looks at is can you add some novel digital endpoints by adding things like wearables or like gait detection or dyskinesia mo- monitoring or a lot of different things where you know that's like really where the quality of life changes are happening is in the patient's day-to-day life but in a clinical trial you're not really monitoring that as much it's it's what can you measure in the office itself which obviously there are like objective things you look at in the form of of how your the disease is actually changing but there's a lot of stuff where that are helping patients actually in their homes that we don't measure as well. And I think there's a kind of open opportunity there to, to and, and obviously we're trying to capitalize on that. And we're also seeing this with uh, Google baseline and a lot of all other companies that are doing a lot more home monitoring uh, in the form of research. And, but I think there's still so much more space there. And then one more area in the life sciences space, I think just getting more patients involved earlier in the process of the clinical trial itself. So protocol design through, through the entire, um, actual engagement itself, I think is really important. I'm, I'm pretty excited for a lot of these companies that are helping connect patients with more rare disease, rare types of cancers, etc. with trials, because, um, I think, I think there's a lot more specificity we can get from a patient's disease to match them to the correct trial that we just haven't really explored as much yet.
0: Do you think there are opportunities to build better PBMs? Is that a startup opportunity you're excited about?
2: You know, honestly, like I, it's hard for me to see the business of a PBM, at least a standalone PBM exist in the future. It just like, it it just boggles my mind that this even exists as a business today. Uh, I, I, and I, and I. It's hard to see like what value a standalone PBM would provide in this day and age. Um, I, 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 I think a lot of the. I mean, we see. We obviously saw like a rash of acquisitions in the PBM space, and now I don't even think there are any independent, like, real formidable independent PBMs anymore. And I think if there's like the lowest hanging fruit for Amazon to go after, it would be pharmacy supply chain, which basically removes the PBM concept completely. Uh, you know, we, we don't really, and I think in the age of the internet, the need for someone to do negotiating on behalf of pharmacies and people, et cetera, with pretty black box techniques is just, it's just, it's hard to see that actually existing in, in the future.
1: I, I think sometimes it can be, um, you know, constraining or a little bit myopic too. And we sort of describe things as like is it worth building a PBM? Um, I try to think about it more from the standpoint of like what are still like the unsolved problems in sort of the supply chain? And I don't know if it will be quote, a PBM or it'll be a pharmacy or some other new, right. newly described entity, but um you know, two of I would say like the core problems still in that value chain. Number one, um, drug companies still make money when they ship a product from their manufacturing facility from a warehouse to a wholesaler so it's moving at warehouse to warehouse that's when the dollars flow to them and there's rebating and all that other stuff but fundamentally they're paid when they move product and i don't think that needs that's like the future of drugs drugs need to be measured just like every other producer or supplier in the healthcare system does the drug work or not and if it works we pay for it and if it doesn't work we're not paying for it and it's your job to sort of get like a clean good label on your drug and get it to the right you know get it to the right patients but I would say today, no PBM has an ability to measure that data or adjudicate that type of contract. And so that feels like a big missing gap to me is if we want drug companies to have more skin in the game, to take more risk, um, to really, you know, guarantee that the drug that they've gotten approved and it has this label, it has these claim benefits, whether it makes it or not, some, something has to exist in that space. So I think that's one. I mean, I think the other one is that there's very little like feedback and loops back to uh, even just beginning with the doctors, like the people who prescribe drugs to people. Uh, if you're a doctor and you prescribe drugs to your patient, you don't even know if they pick them up, much less if they take them. And most doctors you talk to are like, "All this new stuff is cool, but I wish the patients would just do what I ask them." Like, I just wish most of my patients would do the thing that I tell them, and they don't even know like those those types of basics. So. I think, unfortunately, we have a lot of people who know the answers to these questions, but they choose not to serve, uh, you know, other other stakeholders. So those are like two examples of problems I still see in the supply chain. And I don't know whether quote it means like a new PBM. Um, I, I don't know, but there there should be entities that exist that are doing things. I think a bit, you know, sort of a bit a bit a bit differently than um, are being being done today. I don't think we need like some new entrant to just take a little less spread. Like if the spread is. Fifteen cents, like having somebody come in and take ten cents, doesn't feel like that interesting or impactful. Impactful to me, of like giving a nickel back, you know, two and a half cents to consumers and two and a half cents to the drug companies, doesn't feel that interesting to me.
0: Yeah, having analyzed that value chain, is there anything else going back to analyzing through the value chain of the of clinical clinical trials work that you noticed are sort of unique opportunities for for companies to exist?
1: I mean, my, my honest answer is like I looked at probably um, just under a 100 companies like a couple of years ago uh, from sort of like uh, the site startup to uh, recruiting, enrollment, the participant management, all the sort of e-clinical uh, kind of software and then the monitoring stuff. And I think it's hard to build um, you know, really valuable material businesses sitting in one place in that sort of like chain, uh, ultimately because you don't control enough of the trial um, sort of end to end to influence it. You know, recruiting is like a is a good example of of something where if you look at sort of the length of the recruiting period, there's these terms known as like first patient in and last patient in. And so even if you are really, really good at it at your like it's a 25 site trial and your site's really good at it. And you're only given so much quota, or we need like a multi, you know, like a multi-site trial, we need some degree of diversity, or your country is really good at it, and another country and a global trial is not, you're actually not moving the needle. Like you're not actually making the system work any better. And so I think there's all these companies that believe, hey, I, there's this really, really difficult part of the value chain, and I think I'm solving it, but aren't actually solving the whole problem. And so probably the more interesting companies. Uh, I'm just going to tee this one right up for Nikhil are trying to take more control um, of that, of that loop and value chain. And, you know, like I think a company like metadata, they built an EDC business. It was profitable, valuable. I think Viva is, you know, uh, one of the companies from, you know, my post three years ago that's gone from like a $5 billion company to a 20 or $25 billion company and doesn't look any signs of slowing down. They're working in sort of that e-clinical e-clinical space. Now those feel more like exceptions to building large you know, companies in the space rather than, than sort of the rule. They emerged at a time when they were just beginning that transition from paper to electronic and they happened to move some of that electronic stuff into the, into the cloud, which I don't know if those opportunities are going to... Personally, I don't know if those opportunities are going exist, to exist again. It's to say, I, I could definitely be wrong, but it doesn't seem to me that's where the, the opportunity lies. I think pharma companies need people who have way more control over the value chain, the flow of people, the flow of information, help them drive improvements and efficiencies in their, in their trials. Um, uh, not just like the ones that they're working on today, but the ones that they're going to work on you know, sort of in the in the future.
2: I'm wondering if I should just take this alley-oop and just dunk it straight or. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think that's totally correct. Like the low hanging fruit is probably over. Uh, it's funny because trial spark started as a patient recruitment business also. Um and then you realize very quickly that if you're recruiting patients and then they go to the sites, they just totally drop off unless you actually can can run the site as well. So for us, it was real, you know, starting, I think it's like a lot of companies in the healthcare space, you start at that kind of like easier entry point, higher margin, et cetera, and then realize that you're not actually capturing the value or actually like making the system any better. If you, for, for as soon as you hit the like, Existing legacy healthcare system, all all efficiencies basically drop unless you keep going down that stack. So for us, it was okay. I guess we need to be the sites as well. And so when you combine the digital recruitment with the sites, uh, it looks very different. But really, for us, you know, the goal is just how do we get more people into trials, just generally, right? Like like trials should become a much better part of the standard of care and just like another option for patients to choose if, if they so want right now, a, you know, a agonizingly small number of people are aware of trials or take part in trials or even know that that's an option for them. And there's some pretty messed up incentives that kind of prevent that from happening. You know, if you're a physician and, and there's a trial happening and it's not in your clinic, you might potentially lose that patient. So it's not necessarily in your best interest to, uh, you know, make the patient super aware of this. So for us, we're basically trying to make make it as, as accessible for patients to just take part in trial. Again, like this whole theme has just been lowering friction, lowering, like lowering the barriers mm-hmm. to entry for a patient to do the next thing. Uh, if, if, if you bring clinical trials to a patient's doctor and basically say like, hey, this is another treatment option for you, you can get more patients into the trial. For drug companies, uh, a big part of this is literally just, can we get enough patients to even meet the criteria that we're setting? And there's this kind of like interesting tension that exists between, hey, we were looking for like a really specific kind of patient for this drug. So so it's what's called the inclusion-exclusion criteria. We're looking for a patient that looks really specifically like this, but the more specific you get, obviously the harder it is to find those patients, right? So in theory, if you just expand the pool Of of patient accessibility into trials, you might actually find more patients that either fit that criteria, or you might just have more patients generally. So your statistical significance at the end is is more powerful. Uh, But the goal is literally just okay. We need to we need to make it easier for patients to get into trials for us. That's okay. Let's go to the local physician's clinic, turn them into a clinical trial site. Now instead of traveling like three hours to go to an academic medical center to take part in a clinical trial. We're with your current physician, we're with a physician that's maybe 30 minutes away from you, et cetera. And that's just like a heavy, that's like an infrastructure business. You know, like we're building, we're building something that is obviously very, uh, you know, very capital intensive to build, but we are taking the entire value chain of the clinical trial because we think that's really the only way to like truly push the needle on cost in this space.
0: I want to now transition into our long short segment of the uh, of the podcast. So I want I'm going to give you guys a bunch of categories, but first I, I want you guys to suggest one long and one short uh, that you have. It could be sort of a, a sector or subsector that you don't see lots of uh, companies uh, you know emerging out of, or, or that you do if you're long uh, that we haven't yet discussed, um, or something in the in the broader you know uh, industry that, that you think should be no, no, uh, mentioned.
1: I'm long, uh, I mean, I think we've already talked about, it. I'm long, more accessible imaging. So MRI, ultrasound, you know, the uh, sort of cues or, uh, butterflies, Bay Labs or whatever their new name is um, of the world. So I would say I'm long, those technologies, they've been around a while, but most of us haven't seen them. And so I think our, uh, sort of exposure and ability to, um, gain access to those technologies, I think that there's, um, they're, 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 they're very safe number one uh and two, so, yeah we just we haven't um really had much access to them so I'm, I'm long i'm long that space uh i'm short uh uh home sort of like commodity blood testing so if it's the same test i can get done at local quest and lab core i would say i'm short all these companies that are shipping me a kit in the mail and ask me to send blood back for whatever reason whether it's you know sort of food allergies or fertility i'm short all that stuff because the tests are available like widely, and all of us have always had accessi- accessibility to them. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely, I'm short that, I'm short that space. Uh,
2: yeah, I would say that I am, I'll start with the short. I'm short, I guess they're both related to each other, but I'm short uh, massive hospital and provider systems right now. I think we've reached peak consolidation and, and it's kind of, we're, we're ready to see, I think, like lower overhead versions of care delivery that, that, uh, that large hospitals are kind of, I I think, I think we're ready to see uh, 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 basically the unbundling of these, a lot of these large hospitals. I think if you look at North Carolina, kind of an interesting battleground for this, where now uh, physicians are actually seceding away from the major hospital system. So very excited to watch that. And then long uh, enabling those physicians to become independent. I think, I think the only way you can actually bring the cost of healthcare services down is by creating a more competitive landscape for the services part of this business, which, you know, people forget this, but the most expensive part of healthcare is labor. It's, it's not even close compared to everything else. Um, and I think one of the only ways you can make this, uh, make this uh, system work is by making it uh, more possible for physicians to become independent again and and finding ways for them to stay independent create maybe lower cost models of 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 of, of running a practice and being closer to their patients etc uh or and also like handling their back office practice management claims all that kind of stuff like we we i think we need to find ways for physicians to really uh uh get closer to their patients and 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 want to work to retain them and manage their care better so yeah, two sides of the same coin, but I'm, I'm, I really want to see the hospital system landscape change.
0: And um, is there any uh, anything else you'd add to your, if we had an anti-request for startups that you've seen so many of them, you just don't see uh, it, it playing out. Um, anything else you'd add that we haven't discussed?
2: I, I guess I could take the first stab at this. It's funny because it's like, it's almost become a meme to see a person go from like, uh, a tech company to like entering healthcare and seeing their like train of thought as they try to fix the system where it's, Hey, what we, you know, the problem is electronic medical records. What we need to do is build a new electronic medical record, a new personal health record. And like reality is like, that's, that's probably not the best point of entry at this point. Uh, and then they say, Hey, we like need to sell to employers. They're the people who are you know, controlling all the dollars. And like, that's also not the way to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really short. I guess like I'd really like to see less companies targeting the self-insured employer space personally. Um, I just think that the future of this country's healthcare system has to have less employer involvement, not more. Um, I think that's like a really, really bad dynamic for the system and, you know, want to see people, Find find other other forms of reimbursement that are not self insured
1: employers. I, I agree with Nikhil. I mean, I think that spaces uh, kind of will uh, end up being a, a pretty significant bloodbath. Like not as bad as provider IT, but that many companies have been sort of guided into the employer market, but won't be able to build large businesses. And the ones that do sort of like uh, have gotten out, I think will become you know some some consolidators of of that. I don't see. I don't personally see like employers out of the healthcare business anytime, sort of in the near term. But I do find the B two B to C models that are very employer driven like not interesting, probably not the thing not the thing to pitch me. Um, the other space I feel like I just keep seeing you know the same company over and over again. It's like sort of care coordinator workflow tools. <laughs> it's these kind of super messaging apps that are like omni channel patient relationship management uh, apps and they kind of cycle through like selling to ACOs then selling to insurance companies then selling to like startup companies. Um, I've seen a lot of different forms and, and flavors of that. And I can't, I'm still like trying to figure out how many, how so many people get, uh, sort of turned onto that, turned onto that problem. And then the other one, um, like, I think all these online pill companies had sort of emerged And the one I, uh, I don't know if like somebody had the idea originally and then pitched too many VCs, but menopause I'd seen like six or seven now companies wanting to do a uh, sort of online menopause. And that's to say nothing of sort of the problem or the unmet need. I was just sort of shocked to see them all within probably like a six month period. I saw, I think, I think, yeah, five or six, five or six different different companies going after that space.
0: And do you think there will be a, a big winner there?
1: In menopause? Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I, I mean, it might be worth a whole longer, like a whole thread of discussion here of like, what is the moat around some of these online pharmacy companies? Like, does it naturally lend itself to winner takes all and, and why? I don't have a thesis for that. Again, I'm not the, I don't know everything, not the smartest person out there, but like, I don't, I couldn't build one of like, why that space is, you know, anything more than a, like the, the moat being like a consumer brand. Uh, it's hard to see what, you know, sort of online prescribing. Like I, it feels like selling shoes online. I'm not, I'm not sure
0: with companies like Nurex or pill club
1: or or something yeah i mean i think some of them are you know working on different like different different flavors of business model and different forms of like long-term relationships with uh with with patients but it's just not clear to me like why one has to one has to win uh like why it's a you know sort of winner takes all situation but the market also i mean for something like birth control is Unreasonably uh, large. So, if you're asking, like, could somebody build a big company? I think the answer is, yeah. I think the answer is, uh, uh, yes. Uh, whether they can hold that position, I don't. I don't know. It's not not clear to me. So,
0: um, Bill Gurley, a couple years ago, at this point, um, had this uh, blog post about why he's uh, he's now excited about. <laughs> you guys both smiling. <laughs> why he's he's now excited about healthcare. What, what do you think were the the lessons, uh, and you, you guys have a co-investment in Solve, in what do you think were are, are the lessons there or did he get or was sort of misunderstood a little bit or could have been, and obviously he was new to it, but what would you comment there in terms of what was interesting? Uh,
1: I mean, I, I don't know what his, what his thinking um, is. I'm not going like, to pretend like I do. I, I would just say probably the, the hardest lesson and Nikhil and I had had met up recently and we're, we're talking about this, like the pace of healthcare is just really slow. So when you think you have the, the sort of timing down, you probably need to add a few years. And Nikhil and I were joking that like, we could leave healthcare for 10 years and come back and it would be fine. Like healthcare is still gonna be here. There's still gonna be like a lot of opportunity to improve it. And in fact, it should get easier over time, which, you know, like Nikhil was saying at the beginning and his, you know, presentation on that. Like I'm I'm so in so in agreement about the idea that things are getting easier and there is sort of positive progress. But I think, you know, how how quickly things actually tend to move, uh, I think has probably been been slower. I think this consumerism trend is like absolutely um, sort of real and if, you know, an investment, if you had done an investment in, you know, different areas of consumer healthcare, you might think like, well, I really caught the tiger by the tail. Like I think a lot of the Hims investors feel they made an investment where they caught the consumerism trend you know, right on. Other areas might have looked right, but were, you know, sort of were were less right. But I think in, in, in general, like the timing of these trend shifts has been probably more challenging for people like things, things develop slowly. I think that's the case. I look at everything we sort of did at Rock Health and everything was, everything was too, you know, sort of too early. And a lot of companies having to forge business models and stay alive that are actually getting healthier and healthier if they've been able to, um, stick around, but it's but it's hard. I think the timing is is really getting the timing right is challenging, and then having the patience for it also is is tricky. So that's I, I would guess it's probably just been not as um, forget explosive, just not even as uh, growth oriented as most investors would would want coming in the space.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I think the other thing is also it's really hard to just deploy a a the exact same business model from like tech and ported it over to healthcare uh it you know i think a lot of people look for comparables when they're like oh i want to build you know uh, this tech company but for healthcare like shopify for x or whatever um i think the reality is like because the buying the purchasing behavior is very different etc like almost every company i've seen has in some way, shape, or form included a services aspect to their business because the pure software part is really difficult, um, even for consumers, etc. Like you really need to um, have a little bit more handholding, a little bit more concierge. Like it, it, people are not going to be like one hundred percent informed purchasers in a lot of these cases, and so. Uh, and the other thing is also like you. I think you, it's hard, It's way harder to unbundle anything in this space because, uh, in a lot of cases, people just don't want to deal with point solutions. They really just want, uh, to like have the, with the exception of consumers, which I actually think is like the area where we're starting to see a lot of unbundling. But, um, I, I think, I think a lot of people are, are generally like to have their holistic healthcare taken care of slash, um, enterprise side, at least like, it's really hard to kind of like get them to change their, their ways.
1: Right, I, think, I think I'll probably take like a, a, a disagree since Nikhil and I have been agreeing too much of like, I, I just think like a bundling and unbul- unbundling goes in cycles. So we want these sort of like best in class solutions because the payers are sort of aggregated and everything's sort of average crappy. And so then these specialists come in and they do that. And then all of a sudden now I'm an employer and I'm staring at a hundred point solution. So I go and look for somebody to uh, somebody to re-aggregate and re Rebundle it. So I feel like we're in that part of the cycle now where so many point solutions emerge and some of them were able to get in and escape even within the enterprise side. I think Lavongo is like a good example of somebody who went in as a point solution. I'm a connected glucometer. I'm doing diabetes. They slowly expanded just before going public. And now they'll have the cap to sort of start consolidating and be that aggregator of different disease solutions, you know, to, to the employer. So some of that just feels a little bit like um, sort of uh, uh, cyclicality to me. Um, I, I mean, I think like uh, a, a lot of what, um, you know, we were thinking about um, in, in terms of uh, like Solve is a good, you know, like a good, a good example of a company and I can't, I can't speak for, uh, you know, the benchmark side of it, but um, having worked with them early on and then uh, doing the deal at, at Greylock too, I actually think most of the thesis has been you know, absolutely right, which was really about a shift to convenient care and where are those people, where do they live? Um, and all of that has been um, exactly right and true. Like I think the idea of lower barriers, um, people wanting to access highly convenient care, uh, not adopting, like not really um, having a primary care physician or a, a major medical home, and especially that use amongst sort of uh, parents. Like many of those trends have actually played out. What I think is always really, really challenging and in, in the healthcare space is like what is a what is a well thought through business model that enables you to capture that value. But I think from a sort of like where was the market going, that piece is played out, you know, reasonably well. But um, I think like the the biggest challenge with many of these companies, and it's not, I mean, I'm not I'm not speaking of salt specifically, but just a lot of healthcare businesses once you've sort of created uh, an attraction point or some consumer demand and adoption, like what is the thoughtful business model, you, you build around that. And probably like the best possible example of that of somebody hitting a trend squarely on the nose and making a ton of money doing it. It's like good Rx. Price of drugs became too high. People were on cash pay, high deductibles. They saw all this weird pricing arbitrage in the market and they were able to kind of get in with a really simple solution for consumers, grow consumer adoption and brand and had the business model To back it up. I've not seen anything, you know, like that. I think that's like one of like was a very unique company, but I'm, I'm guessing there'll be more, more of those types of, more of those types of opportunities. It's just, I think, hard to, hard to find them. Even when you manage to get distribution and traction, which is one of the most challenging things to do in the health space, it's still not easy to have, have like a business model. I think that's where like I would agree with Nikhil, like taking a tech business model and just lumping it on to the healthcare space is, is challenging. Like it's right. not, it's not so easy. Like there was um, like marketplaces are fascinating and sort of like transactional fees. It, it was literally just like two weeks ago that OIG finally issued an opinion to ZocDoc allowing them to charge, you know, a booking fee. Like, so it's, you couldn't even have like a similar marketplace, like an exactly similar marketplace business model. You couldn't do promoted listings, things like that were, considered against the law and it took them, I don't know, they've been around for over 10 years to actually get that, get that opinion. But it's now, you know, a, a bigger, a bigger and more wide open game for things like that.
2: Yeah. I was just going to jump in and just say, well, I think one of the big, big kind of points that that Malay's bringing up is also it, I, I can't stress enough how important customer segmentation is in healthcare because people have really, really differing health needs, right? There are people who have like basically just need commodity care. And for like their X problem, they don't really care which physician they see. Uh, they just need to get it done. And that's like entirely convenience and price. That's all they care about. Like what are they paying out of pocket? How fast can they do it, etc. Then on the other side, if you have people who have like a very specific disease or, or a, a recurring chronic condition that has had a high unmet need, et cetera. They develop very strong relationships with their specialist of choice. And that specialist does a lot of the things that their PCP does. Um, so I think for companies that are tackling this, sometimes what happens, I think, is they try to create a horizontal solution that's sort of designed to try and treat every patient's needs. Um, but really, I think it's it's you have to do strong customer segmentation. Figure out like what what is you know what are the issues this group is facing from end to end, and just really target that group, and then move down move down the like the you know the customer journey of just that one specific person, rather than suddenly trying to like expand to all of healthcare, which I think is tends to be a fatal mistake.
0: Was Emily uh, was Stitch? I think the Slack for doctors is that an example of imposing a. Your business model from tech onto on healthcare. I'm curious. I guess that that is a provider IT company. You mentioned your your dubious with provider IT companies. What would need to be true for you to be excited about one? Or like what the world can, can that be? Uh,
2: I think this is exactly the care coordination stuff you were talking
1: about. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the world would have to like we would have to. Start over <laughs> with providers. <laughs> like I'm not. I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure. Like maybe one that serves. You know, a provider IT company that ser- is serving these modern providers. Getting back to Nikhil's earlier point of like, are is it possible now that some of these um quote like smaller like non healthcare incumbents are getting to a a point and like a a scale where you can actually serve them uh, and solve problems for them. So. I would I would be interested in a business that's able to serve serve those companies. I mean, I know I think one area that's come up you know a, a lot there was a company in the last in the last YC class is billing is like a good example. And I, um, I I won't talk about any specific companies, but I I just know like looking at the Rock Health portfolio, virtually every company built their own billing solutions to be able to you know sort of manage that. Everybody was working with employers and working with payers. They they built a billing solution, and now. Are there enough sort of like new style providers to to kind of service that? So I I would guess, you know, if I was going to do something in the provider, like invest in stuff in the provider IT space, it would probably be serving like the next generation of uh, providers rather than uh, anything within the legacy, within the legacy generation.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it'd have to be a wedge into some, more interesting, larger platform business rather than trying to like slog it out and go provider to provider and sell into it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm curious to watch kind of a lot of these like voice documentation companies, because I think they solve a really, really, you know, specific pain point for physicians around documenting their visits. But, you know, there's an interesting world in where that just becomes a wedge into building a more interesting data platform for, for, um, people to build on top of, right? Like uh, that like I think there are a few documentation companies that that I I think would be interesting, but I haven't I haven't seen one yet that also is like you know hundred percent great at like replacing the existing documenting process, which then kind of makes it for not if they have to like mm-hmm. check over the notes all over again. So, but but I'm I, I think that's I think that's a really interesting space
0: so there was these um there was a moment where people were encouraging sort of this one medical for x like take a you know build a you know vertical full-stack solution against a disease um and you know one one medical for musculoskeletal or one medical for for women's health or what happened to these companies what, what do you think about that approach
2: i think people misunderstand why one medical is successful um, um I think the I think the big thing with one medical is that they really tapped into the fact that like this is a great perk for employers to offer their employees because when you go from like one company to another company it's like literally the same exact questions get asked it's hey what does anyone ever a, recommend a primary care physician that's under our network etc one medical basically makes that super easy in the sense of like oh we have one medical that's just like gonna be the pcp that i use and it's great that like my information from my last employer to this employer now carries over and i can kind of continue my care i think what people misunderstand is that um whoops sorry uh i think whoa how do i turn the shit off sorry uh i think what people misunderstand is that it's uh you know people are people are not like willing to like pay these subscriptions just to like have like a commodity access to some like commodity specialist, et cetera. Right. Like I think there are a few areas where that might be the case. I think primary care dental arguably, and then maybe something like physical therapy or therapy or like the few areas where that happens. I'm sorry. My fault. Um, let me sign Um Yeah. So I think those are like some of the few areas where that happens, but you know, like building a one medical for like GI or something, like just doesn't make sense to me. It has to be something where uh, there's like a high variance in the in the quality of brand that uh, brand and like services that are offered. So people are looking for like kind of this like standardized solution. Uh, it's got to be something that I think is like a really nice perk that people would offer. Uh, and I think it's I think it's got to be something where. Where uh, people like would theoretically uh, use it enough that it would even be worthwhile for the employer to offer it as a as a um, as an offering.
0: I, I want to say a space, and then you tell me either where you're you're bullish or bearish on it, or a specific sort of hot take or, or opportunity you see see within it. So for fertility, um, you mentioned you're you're less excited about sort of the the consumer tests. Where are we, maybe unpack that, or where are we excited in, in fertility at all?
1: Uh, I'm excited by what Hallie's doing at Natalist. I think that for most people, like trying to conceive should be a natural, healthy process, not for everyone, obviously. And I think we should um, find find solutions for that. But a good starting point is one that's based on science and not fear and helping people through through that journey. So I'm pretty excited about what, what Hallie's doing, which is, basically saying like we're not trying to <laughs> scam you or scare you. We're trying to just give you the things that for most people, this is the way that it it should work. And if it doesn't, then let's like start to revisit revisit that. But to me it's like sort of a little bit of the difference between fertility and infertility. So um, that's something I'm you know more more bullish on. I feel like it's been a little bit tricky to find uh, good investments in the women's health space in the sense of like feeling like they're very they have like an authentic uh, message that's like very scientifically driven and not sort of fear fear based.
0: Yeah. Um, h- how about on insurance or the payer side? What are sort of um, what do you think about sort of incumbents in this space or what do you think about opportunities to
2: build the companies there? I guess I can, I can start with this one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it'll be interesting. I think it's like interesting to watch a lot of the Medicare Advantage companies kind of you know, th- I mean, now that space has gotten really crowded um, and I'm interested to see kind of how these companies choose to differentiate themselves. Um, you know, there's there's basically two, there's like almost two parts to it. There's how do you acquire new customers uh, from, from new Medicare beneficiaries, which is one of the most difficult parts and hard to tell if tech plays a role there or not, or if it's just adding cool new perks. I mean, I saw Devoted today, for example, offering the Apple Watch and covering that. Like, is that something that, it's interesting enough to actually attract new Medicare beneficiaries like TBD, not totally sure. Uh, Or is that something where the tech actually helps reduce something like uh, unnecessary admissions, which is like really where you start seeing cost savings um, for on a per enrollee basis. So uh, I, I, I'm curious to just see, and we won't know, I mean, like to the earlier point, the feedback loop here is like seven to 10 years. Right. So we won't know, basically for a pretty long time if in aggregate a lot of these companies where they have like a lot of lives covered um are are actually using tech in ways that either gets new customers or significantly improves their bottom line but i'm curious i'm curious to watch and see how that happens so that's one area that Obviously, has gotten a lot of, and also a lot of the rules are changing for next year, for 2020, in terms of what can be covered in the primary care side of things. So, I think a lot of companies, both the incumbents as well as new companies, are are really looking to figure out cool new, like primary care, expanded primary care perks, basically, to make their uh, offerings more attractive. I'm sure we'll start seeing things like you know, groceries and meal kits being uh, covered and, like, ride-sharing in some capacity to a doctor's office, etc. cetera. Like, I think we'll really start seeing the, like, perks and benefits of Medicare of Medicare Advantage really take off next year. Um, cur- like, really curious if a lot of these newer players actually are, uh, are an attractive option for new Medicare beneficiaries. I'm not totally sure, but I'm watching. Um, and then I'm kind of interested in seeing... There's like this niche area of like catastrophic plans that have popped up, which I don't know. I mean, you know, on the one hand, some of them seem kind of shady and suspect. But on the other hand, um, we're seeing this like interesting, uh, almost like new healthcare system being built where it's like cash pay consumers that use like a direct primary care physician or or some PCP uh, and then just have coverage in the case of some like disastrous event. Uh, and that's an area where it's a little, it feels a little bit more consumer focused, but also at the same time, like I'm really, I'm, I'm not sure how many consumers know exactly what they're buying into. And I feel like there are a lot of shady characters in that space too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like low benefits plans. There was a reason why we got rid of them under the ACA. They're pretty scummy, scummy products where people end up. End up bankrupt. So I don't know exactly which companies you're describing. That I feel like anything that's not covering you is not 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 great. Um, unless you've been ultra clear and transparent. I think with the with the broader payers, uh, Eric. Maybe we discussed this actually on that that first podcast a couple a couple of years ago. I don't think anything has really changed. So the ones that have been around it a little bit longer, like these new startup insurance companies, they're actually their growth is. Slowed down sort of uh, pretty, pretty dramatically, like in the MA space. Um, I would say that US, America deserves better health insurance companies. Like we deserve better payers. But if, if you look back at sort of that market and that industry, United became United, Aetna became Aetna, and so on and so forth from consolidation, it was inorganic growth. So there was like a, a sort of once in a lifetime opportunity to roll up highly fragmented markets i don't really understand what the weapon from a tech standpoint is for gaining scale and distribution in this space like free rides uh that's cool um i went on devoted's website actually after that apple watch story came out to look at the benefits list they already offer those so you get free free rides for the doctor i'm pretty sure any ma plan can offer the same thing like that's not a a point of like defensibility or acquisition and technically they're not paying for apple watches they're giving you 150 dollars to spend on any wellness thing you want so it's not uh, just watches. But like, if you want Jenny Craig weight loss, they'll pay for that or Zumba classes. They'll give you $150 to spend, um, you know, kind of on that stuff. And I don't, to me, that's not tech being used to scale uh, sort of the business. I do think they're going to be able to become uh, more margin positive within the, within the regulatory scheme that they have of like being margin capped. But I think they'll be able to, on a unit basis, make more money. Both like their administrative costs will be more efficient due to like tech and, Everything else we'll use. And I think that they'll actually be, you know, better partners to, to doctors and be able to, you know, control some of the health spending in ways that other payers can't. But I just don't know. I, I, yeah, I just don't see them really getting to much, much scale. I think they're building pretty attractive sort of chassis or platforms. And the big question to me is like, what happens in the, in the intermediate game and which companies exit and sale and which ones are kind of left without a, without a dance partner? Because at the end of the day, you're still like, you're still a payer. And even if you're a high growth payer, you go from like a, a 0.8 to 9X multiple to like a one and a half X multiple. Um, and I'm not sure that venture is going to feel good at that, that point. So I'm very interested in, as these companies sort of like grow older, what that intermediate, who gets, who gets a dance partner and who's kind of like left trying to grow a small scale health insurance company.
2: I think the other thing that's so tough in this space is like the regulatory landscape. is so in flux. Here, that it's really hard to like really invest in some big bet, etc., and like and 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 hope it takes off. I mean, Oscar is a great example where they really made a bet on like the exchanges early on, and that just turned out to be like and not you know not not necessarily their fault or anything. They really just took a big bet and like didn't plan out the way that they thought. And uh now we're basically at another kind of election cycle, and it's you know everything could totally change once again, right? So if you're a new Payer and you're making a bet on a space. Uh, there's so much regulatory uncertainty that and, and capital requirements that it's just hard to see exactly how you would create a massive new payer again right now and like take a big swing with someone willing to willing to do it today.
0: I'm curious to get a sense for
2: you know what,
0: what are the major bottlenecks that are sort of preventing sort of the the gold rush of of you know, healthcare company, for example, like, you know, our, our, our mutual friend Sarah Tavel has said that she, she doesn't invest in healthcare. just too, too complicated or, or like, when is she going to be lining up to uh, she and all the, uh, you know, other great investors out there to be, you know, allocating venture dollars to, to healthcare opportunities. Like, what, what's holding it back and, and when can we
2: see it? I I actually, you know, it's funny because I don't think healthcare is as complicated as everyone seems to make it seem uh, like obviously it's tough to understand maybe if you're like trying to tackle the entire landscape at once. But uh, if you actually spend like a relatively reasonable amount of time, I think you can get up to speed relatively quickly on the space if you just pick a specific segment you're really interested in. Um, and I also don't think it's necessarily venture dollars that it's holding companies back. Um, I, I mean, anecdotally, have just noticed a lot more tech investors now looking at healthcare as an investable opportunity just because... I think the low hanging fruit in like pure mobile, pure software, pure et cetera, have kind of been tapped out a bit. And so now people are going after these like more legacy industries, complicated problems, et cetera. So I've definitely seen a migration of investors to the space. And frankly, like, I mean, one of the big bottlenecks, which I think is changing right now has been talent in the space. Um, I think it was really hard to attract smart people or like a lot of ambitious people to healthcare because, um, you know, there are great jobs in other parts of tech and this is a space that is, seems really complicated and the feedback loops are really long, et cetera. Now I think you have kind of a lot of uh, people like talented people entering the space either because, you know, maybe they're disenchanted working at, you know, some of the large tech companies, The healthcare is like a more social enterprise uh, industry to work in. There are a lot of people now who are alumni of that first wave of healthcare companies like PillPack, TalkDoc, Doc, um, et cetera, who are like really bringing the chops um, of being at the intersection of healthcare and tech, uh, which, which is, I think, really great. So I think labor, which was like a really big part or like just smart people entering the space, was, I think, a really big bottleneck. Um, but I think that's actually been changing a lot. That's actually one of the reasons I'm like most bullish on. Healthcare or digital health, right now, broadly is because just the influx of talent has been really impressive. Um, you know, capital is capital. I don't, I don't really think capital has been the constraining factor in the space, candidly. Um, but I think talent, and I think also just again going back to this, but like having early adopters being able to like test solutions out has been a huge bottleneck. Like there, there's a whole layer of like AWS for X in healthcare that is slowly being built right now that makes it just easier for small companies to start. And I think once that happens, you'll like really see an inflection point in the space.
1: Yeah, I feel like um, it's fund by fund and you know, person by person. And a couple a couple sort of like big things that it would seem um, you see investors starting to engage around. I think one, this consumer space starting to take off has uh brought people to brought people to attention um of hey what's what's going on with especially with some of the sort of like online online pill online pharmacy companies i think there's been quite a bit of interest in that space um even even uh uh benchmark they they invested in not not sarah but her partner have invested in Dunchling so i think life sciences is Seen as a, a more ripe and attractive area, and fundamentally, that's a you know a vertical SaaS business. Maybe it's not a healthcare business; it's more just hey, web science is a good is a good vertical, and this is a pure it's a pure SaaS company. Um, I do think the other sort of emerging area, clearly, and uh, we haven't touched a lot on it, um, is just the bio space. There's something certainly happening right now. Uh, forgetting like the venture trends, like we're seeing a lot of innovation and. In, the pure biotech space with the underlying platform technologies around around biology, and so I don't know. I think funds like Andreessen have clearly geared up, hired teams, built dedicated funds for it. CRV has dedicated partners. So I I, I see you know a good solid rush probably will come around um, you know that space that typically I, I guess I would expect the traditional tech investors to. Play on the edges where things look similar, like consumer or like enterprise SaaS, where it's easier to understand the businesses. I think it's right. I mean, the healthcare space is been like doing doing the deep sort of healthcare provider payer stuff. If you don't have the the tool set, you know, sort of for it, some special advantage as an investor, I don't know why you would do it. It's already like hard enough, and there's much easier ways to make to make money than than doing that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I mean, I think. Uh, yeah, I think, I think bio is an interesting area where people will see like a lot of opportunity and we'll see a lot more funds there. I think there's some piece of healthcare that's also kind of related to climate change, where I think we'll see, uh, people, people coming in, um, and then the rest of it will where the sort of like the overlapping areas with traditional tech is where, where you'll see the most play. Which part related to climate change? Uh, like infectious diseases is probably like the, you know, sort of uh, clearest example. The craziest stuff would be, you know, um, adaptability solutions, even for humans to be able to survive in different, uh, as, as the climate changes, like, are there things we could do to, you know, modify our environments where biology could be more, our biology is either better adapted to uh, that environment or we readapt the environments around our existing, existing biology.
2: That's pretty that's super interesting. I never really thought too much about that. But that makes that you know, I think infectious disease is also kind of one of these crazy areas where like there's a pretty big market failure too, because creating drugs, etc., for infectious disease is just not really where the money is in a lot of cases. And so you see this like also the the, the one hand societal inefficiency around solving climate change and then combine that with like the societal inefficiency of, of not mm-hmm. not being great at like solving infectious disease
1: and like that that seems actually like a pretty huge issue
2: like generally yeah, when,
1: I'm yeah. sorry no i was going to say and it could be about like drugs for that so it could be things for us but it could also be things for For the way that we manage crops or the way that we manage uh, manage animals and things that we, you know, sort of, sort of eat. It just seems like there's a lot of different uh, (laughs) vectors for infectious disease and things that we would address using something related to, you know, something related to biology. I think food has been a good example of something that's at the intersection of sort of half health, half, you know, half half bio, or is it half health, half climate change related? Yeah. I don't know. It's, you know, kind of touching on a few, few different, few different areas.
0: You mentioned that you know, one mistake we've made is is just transposing tech business models onto healthcare. But in bio, it seems that Andreessen and some other funds you sort of specifically talk about you know biology as engineering and you equate building sort of biotech companies with building software companies. Is is that going to work in a way that it might not in healthcare?
2: How do you think about that? And I, I, this is like I'm like a total novice in this space, so. Uh, you know, take everything I say with a grain of salt. But I think one of the, to your point, one of the really cool things in the last few years has been being able to create these like really tight iterative feedback loops that are kind of getting shorter and shorter in, um, you know, basically as you run experiments, being able to get, get uh, results faster, which I think is kind of independent of the engine of, engin- of uh, engineering biology, but just that's like a trend in life sciences that I think is really cool. And i you know i remember distinctly when i used to work in a lab back in the day how uh how long experiments would would take either because a lot of these processes are really manual uh and you have to wait a really long time for them to happen and then the the you know the 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 informatics takes a long time etc and now you know you have so much like awesome uh automation in the lab and the 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 you know Computers have gotten so much better in that time, et cetera. And so it's been awesome actually to see. And now you have tools like CRISPR, et cetera, which lets you do kind of more like experiments kind of on the fly for cheap uh, that I think just in general, tightening feedback loops is generally like a pretty good, like if you can figure out a way to do that is generally a pretty good business. And also like a pretty good sign that you're about to like see a, like truly, you know, like Cambrian explosion of, of, of new, companies new innovations etc so and you've seen that
1: yeah i I agree with that i mean i think like the labs are more efficient for sure the loops are tighter um you know the piece where i would i would push on a lot is like how much of that ultimately is going to translate into humans it seems like we reach some complexity that's not quite you know uh perfectly described within those systems uh, these model systems that are created and i think uh uh, flagship the the bio fund put out like a, a very lengthy interesting essay about you know the the human system is is so complex and typically the way that we study complex systems like this is looking at the emergent properties of the system so actually like having to model humans rather than our current method if you think about like things like GWAS which is let's screen a bunch of people and try to find this one thing and then develop a hypothesis around it it might just turn out that we've found a lot of the low hanging fruit there. And now it's time to move on to some of the more complex problems, where we're not going to be able to decode them in the same way. And we have to look. We have to have more human, like human-oriented models. And then to rather than trying to start from like sort of quote first principles down at some um, molecular bio level that we might have to look at more. What are the properties of this system that emerge when we observe humans for for long periods of time and work backward, work backward from there. I've been a pretty anti sort of like phenotypic based model approach person. Like I'm more interested in, I've always been more interested in the fundamental biology, but it seems like it is, you know, we're reaching some limits and we have to start from more how things express themselves rather than starting from, we're going to decode the fundamental nature of biology. Like we still don't even know how like DNA replicates itself. Like we're, you know, there's so many things that are still mysterious to us and I'm not sure that we're going to get there as fast as we could by Observing these complex systems, and I think to Nikhil's point, like now we have more of the tools on the engineering and the software side to be able to process, and manage um, a lot of that, a lot of that data, and maybe turn it into new new ideas for for, for therapeutics. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm, you know. Uh, Bullish about like that space in in general, um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of different, probably a lot of different approaches from the fund perspective of how to how to attack those spaces. Yeah. the
0: uh, sort of maybe you know, gearing towards closing here. Um, you know, in, in technology, we think about uh, you know incumbents quite a bit, particularly in consumer. We think, hey, it's it's tough to build something if you're going to compete with Facebook, it's tough to build something if you compete with Amazon. How should um, we think about incumbents as it relates to startups. Obviously, there are tech companies getting into healthcare, and then there are health incumbents. Are there certain spaces that we've just written off and say, hey, Amazon's going to win that? So I'm like, be big companies, or, or how, how should we be thinking about incumbents? I, uh,
2: I guess I can take a stab at this. I, I think the incumbents in every single slice of healthcare have very different behaviors. So, you know, one thing that's uh, kind of surprised me a little bit about the life sciences space is that pharma companies are actually pretty innovative and open to new solutions um, you know even maybe even more so than than a lot of biotechs because uh, they are not single asset uh, dependent so they think they manage more of like a portfolio of a risk and so they're actually a little bit more willing to um, explore and try new solutions so maybe in that space it actually makes a lot of sense to go after the incumbents as their initial customers um, versus if you look through the rest of the space like Uh, Okay, are there areas where having some really, really, uh, you know, built out infrastructure gives like an inherent advantage to, uh, you know, XYZ uh, problem they're solving. So if you're like, if you're trying to tackle pharmacy, if you're trying to do, you know, wholesale pharmacy across the entire US, like, okay, that might not be the best customer segment to figure out. But I don't think it's that different than tech where it's like, find a customer that has a really specific pain point, you just build for that. And then you kind of like move deeper and deeper down the stack of that pain point and and expand from there, right? Like I, I think if you try to build like a really horizontal technology that like an incumbent is probably more likely to to have the distribution already built in for, like not not going to be as easy for you to crack into. But you find some really niche specific customer segment, um, solve a find a pain point that clearly is not being solved uh, you, you have a pretty big opportunity. I mean, the, the reality is like incumbents in healthcare are so much larger and more like Frankenstein esque than in like almost any other industry. Like, like, because of just like how much consolidation has happened in this space, you have this, like, you know, these, these companies that are just doing so many things at once. And, in in a lot of cases, not, not being great at any of them that like, you can, if you find a specific pain point, like, you 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 can you can build a business there and go figure the rest out um, once they start paying you.
0: I, know you, um,
1: I just I don't know, like yeah I, I don't know I don't know how to I, I think it like some of the specifics like do you matter as as sort of Nikhil said um, just in general I do think more like if if you're not competing with some. Uh, incumbents in some way, probably not going to be able to build a big company. Like I, I don't think that um, anytime somebody's like we're making everyone happy, everybody wants to work with us. It's sort of scary uh, to me. I think like somebody needs to feel like they're losing um, if you're building, you know, an interesting company in the in the health space.
2: Yeah, <laughs> build more, build more challengers. I'm yeah. about
0: i only sensitive to both of your times. So we should we should wrap soon. Is there any last um, points or, or things that we didn't get to discuss that you think are interesting for the listeners should know, or any any threads you want to pull before
2: we wrap? Um, I think people just generally should just be less intimidated by healthcare. I mean, that's like that's like the running theme of my life is like how do you how do you make healthcare a, like more accessible place for people? Um, because the the space is not going to get better unless smart people come and try to like take a stab at it and i i, I think a lot of people get turned off because i think it's just really like, impossible to solve and 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 so much regulatory burden etc like do really encourage people to to take a look deeper into the space because there's a lot of really meaningful problems to be solved and a lot of like very interesting businesses and problem sets to tackle so yeah i mean my my one piece is more just like Healthcare is is not as intimidating as you think it is, and and there's a lot of opportunity in the space.
1: No, I, I would echo that. I met with an entrepreneur this morning who you know came came from tech, no healthcare background, has been spending time on like the aging and elderly space for the last few months. And when I met with him this morning, he said it was the most encouraging you know uh, talk that he had. And I'm not I'm not saying that about me, but like literally, everyone's been telling him don't work in healthcare. That he's been meeting with, which I think is, you know, unfortunate, like to sort of like tell people that it's too complex or too hard. Uh it's not to say that it isn't complex or not hard, but I don't think that we should be trying to like keep people out of it. I think we should be encouraging, you know, best best and brightest um into the space. I think um uh the one place Eric we didn't talk about but Nikhil touched upon and was like one of your one of your questions was just like um you know like what's uh kind of like um uh, an issue in healthcare that you don't think is talked about enough. And um, one of our advisors, I think he does, he does a good job of, of pushing us a lot on like sort of um, everyone thinks about tech and like tech-based disruptions or whatever you want to call them, like tech-based innovation and uh, in healthcare space. But he pushes a lot to think about like stroke of a pen uh, innovation. So like where is the regulatory landscape possibly going to change and create an opportunity? Um, like a good example, you know, in the Keel space would be if, that idea uh, that we would no longer have to prove that drugs are efficacious in order to put them on the market, we don't have to prove that drugs are safe. It moves the whole balance of the game from sort of this regulated clinical trial environment to a more, quote, unregulated post-market real world environment where getting all those people into those clinical trials would sort of matter less. Or, you know, if they change the laws around how biosimilars uh, sort of come to market, it would it would dramatically change the way pharma thinks about their products, and their modes, IP. Um, so things like that, I think we tend to sometimes underthink the amount of impact simple regulatory changes can make in in healthcare. And I don't mean simple, like easy to pass, but they would be literally like a stroke of a pen could upend entire entire business models overnight. So it's something that's always worth, um, I think, spending spending time on. I'm glad like one of our advisors pushes us on it of like what are those opportunities that could you know emerge um or that we should be doing market shaping work around that right. would deeply benefit our company
0: and just to give you give a couple minutes there or if, if you had a sort of request for a stroke of strokes of a pen um, any others that, that come to mind that would be game-changing for 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 companies i
2: i mean i think the like lowest hanging fruit here is literally just decoupling the employer and health insurance you know uh uh relationship right now it's you know, it's crazy that we're one of the few developed countries in the world where your employer chooses your health insurance plans options for you. And it just totally messes up the market dynamics. uh, Generally, I'm excited for next year when more of these HRA rules kind of kick in to see if maybe some stuff changes. Um, but, But this is like one of the, like, should be bipartisan support on both sides, because it's, the worst of a marketplace and the worst of a regulated area right now, um, where like employers giving, uh, basically giving their employees dollars to go shop around on a marketplace as opposed to making the decisions for them, I think would 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 be relatively low hanging fruit and like really change how people I think interact and purchase
1: healthcare. The important humane thing to do is to get everybody covered. Like we need to make sure that everyone can access. Healthcare, but then give them agency, put the money in their hands, like they fund the accounts, the government funds the accounts, whatever it is, but give them agency through through money, like spending power, and then agency through data control and ownership of the things that are related to your own related to your own health. Those those feel like the big the big pieces to me, like get everyone in and then give them give them more agency.
2: Agreed
0: a lot of us healthcare issues get blamed on systemic inefficiencies, profiteering, et cetera. Are there ideological differences as a country that as a, as a country that make our healthcare uniquely expensive?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, you, Reinhardt's cover this, uh, cover, cover this many times. Um, it's the prices, like that's why our healthcare system costs, you know, uh, uh, so much, like it, it might be true that, uh, uh, there are places to get the world's best healthcare, um, like in this, in this country, but it's, uh, I mean, I think unequivocal that that is not uniformly distributed. You know, like people don't, most people don't have access to, um, that type of healthcare. Like I, I don't think having the, the top end of healthcare here is what, um, drives like the quote, like systemic inefficiency, um, uh in the market. I do think there's some false choices we make, like the idea that we um, you know, we have so much choice and there's no care rationing and all that. It's like, I I don't know, man. I just pick up the newspaper and somebody's died from not having access to insulin. Like it's just not a we're not a country where everyone is getting uh getting healthcare um sort of sort of services. We're clearly rationing um, you know, our, our budget here too. So I don't know not I, I to me it's not a. it doesn't feel like a values or ideological question it feels like we just do have um systematic inefficiency problems that uh you know you've said it, it's like labor costs which are tied up in hospitals and doctors so to me that's the place we have to go start to address address these things
0: and uh and maybe maybe lastly you you uh if there was anything you could do to rewrite healthcare, we we talked about employer, but anything else, if you could rewrite the system or redesign it, any other edits or, or major changes you'd make?
2: I mean, I think a big one is like around just data kind of interoperability generally. I think, I think, you know, we, we built basically our health IT infrastructure with, um, Providers and payers is like the first entry point into how data should be kind of captured and 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 distributed and 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 created. Uh, I think in like a if we had rebuilt it today, it would look way more like a consumer-driven um, health record system. Um, so so I think figuring out a way to get from here to there is going to be kind of the challenging part, and I think part of it is going to be around giving consumers agency to like make their choices and figure out where they're going to pay money because that's how, uh, that's like how kind of infrastructure is going to be rebuilt. Um, but, but I think, I think we made a, I think we made a mistake in, in how the EMR kind of systems were rolled out and the incentives at play there that did not, that, that basically prioritized custom building of of solutions as opposed to creating platforms, and I think that was, I think I think we're still feeling the pain of that now, and 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 hopefully, and yeah, basically, like
1: I would rewrite that. Yeah, I agree. It was a big, gigantic waste of gigantic waste of taxpayer money, a boondoggle, um, and like patient as a vector of their own data is you know to me like the logical path forward. I'm the custodian and I provision access to to the information related to my own health. I think the other, I mean, we we chatted about like the agency of money and agency of data. Like the last piece uh I would push is really in around around antitrust action, like looking at these local sort of monopolies that we built in the healthcare system systematically market by market and starting to break them, break them apart. Um, because I, I yeah I just think we've uh, everyone who's within these local communities is sort of trapped by their local, local provider systems and telemedicine, virtual care will play some, some role in that. But I think we need some, uh, additional antitrust activity, even though they're quote nonprofits and everything else. I think there's a lot of bad, uh, sort of market, market behaviors and, you know, consolidation that's resulted from, um, our push towards Quote, value-based care and ACOs has had some negative market effects on, on consolidation. I think we have to look at that on the antitrust side.
0: My, my guests today have been Nikhil Krishnan from TrialSpark and Malay Gandhi from Evidation Health. Uh, Malay, Nikhil, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Eric. It was great. Thanks, Eric.
0: Okay. Awesome. Thank you, uh, guys, for your patience and for, uh, for doing an epic one with me. I think this will be a hit.
1: Yeah, I did.